Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back to the Cardio Nerds Cardio Oncology Series. This is Dino Bellanescu, co-chair of the series, house faculty leader in the Cardio Nerds Academy, and general cardiology fellow at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. We have a very special episode today, combining two worlds that are generally not thought of together, and those are cardio-oncology and interventional cardiology. Joining us for today's episode are Dr. Teodora Dattson, Dr. Bala Pushparaji, and faculty expert, Professor Cesar Iliescu. As you know, Teo is also co-chair of the Cardinals Cardio-Oncology Series, house faculty in the Cardinals Academy, and general cardiology fellow at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Hi, Teo. Thank you so much for the introduction, Dino. I'm particularly excited about today's episode for two main reasons. First, the topic itself, as you mentioned. Interventional cardio-oncology is actually the field that I'm planning to pursue clinically and that I've been doing research in for a few years. Interventional cardio-oncology really sounds like a mouthful. I brought up on my interview trail for general fellowship that I'm considering doing interventional cardiology with a focus on the cardio-oncology population, and I honestly got many weird looks. You were right in the introduction, these two fields are generally not associated. While today's episode will make a strong case for being cognizant of certain clinical elements when considering endovascular interventions in the cancer population, and why this association actually makes a lot of sense. This leads me to the second reason why I'm so excited for this episode, our guest expert. It is my absolute privilege to introduce Professor Cesar Iliescu. Arguably one of the only interventional cardio-oncologists in the nation, Professor Iliescu is the director of the cath lab at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Uniquely, Professor Iliescu actually worked for several years as a general surgeon in Romania prior to pursuing internal medicine residency and then cardiology and interventional cardiology fellowships at the University of Texas Houston branch. He is the winner of multiple teaching and research awards and is an honorary member of the Romanian Society of Cardiology. He's also the lead author on the first of its kind Sky Expert Consensus on Interventions in Cardio-Oncology. They say that during a lifetime, you meet about five to six people who have a truly profound impact on your life. To me, Dr. Iliescu is clearly one such person. More or less serendipitously, Dino and I ended up doing a clinical research fellowship under his mentorship prior to our internal medicine residency. Without ever meeting us before, Dr. Iliescu picked us up from the airport in Houston, took us to many grocery store trips as we didn't have a car, and helped us with securing housing during our stay in Texas. He has essentially been like a father to me ever since helping me get settled in as a new transplant in the United States and to prepare for a career in cardiology. Not only is he the source of my passion for and work in cardio-oncology, Dr. Liescu defines for me what it means to be an ultimate, complete mentor and modeled who I am to become as a physician, researcher, and person. It is an incredible privilege to host him on our podcast today. Welcome to Cardio Nerds, Professor Iliescu. Thank you, Dino. Thank you, Teo, for really a kind introduction. And thank you, Bala. Thank you all for having me on your podcast today. It is a great privilege and a great opportunity to meet through you, the cardio nerds world. So thank you all again. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Iliescu. 
Leading tonight's episode is another long-standing collaborator of our research endeavors in interventional cardio-oncology, Dr. Bala Pushparaji. Bala is currently a third-year internal medicine resident at the Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. Bala is incredibly active in cardio-oncology research and published extensively on endovascular interventions in cancer patients. Hi, Bala. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Theo. Hello, everyone. It's truly an honor to be a part of this Cardinate episode. And I, to be honest, I feel like a celebrity already. I'd also like to thank Dr. Eliasko for his incredible mentorship, without whom I would not be in the place where I am today. Dr. Eliasko, thank you so much for joining us. Now, on to the topic at hand. It is interesting that cancer and cardiovascular diseases share so many unexpected similarities and are the top killers in the United States. Not only do these two maladies share many risk factors, but there's evidence that cancer itself is a risk factor for coronary artery disease. Voila, that is a very astute observation. Cancer in and of itself is a risk factor for CAD, even without taking into account proatherosclerotic mechanisms of anti-cancer therapies. Knowing this, let's go to the Cardinerds Cardio-Oncology Clinic. Theo, please tell us about our first patient. Gladly. I really need Dr. Liescu's input on this one. Seeing us in the clinic is Ms. Tracy Tuzmat, a 65-year-old woman with no significant medical history. She was unfortunately diagnosed with breast cancer and is currently undergoing workup for staging. In the meantime, she started to experience intermittent exertional chest pain. She was sent in by her oncologist to the cardiology clinic for further evaluation prior to cancer treatment planning. Dr. Liescu, what is your approach to stable angina in cancer patients? Thank you, Theo. Actually, that's a great question. After 20 years being associated with the field of oncocardiology, I had this revelation that cancer treatment is professional boxing. And I get always a big smile on patients' faces when I tell them this story. And why is a professional boxing or a contact sport? For many reasons. One of them is the patient has a schedule. So you like it or not tonight, the game is posted. People pay per view to watch you boxing tonight. So you like it or not, you're going to box tonight. We bought the pizza. We have the guests tonight. So the boxer is supposed to box. And same holds true for the cancer treatment. There are some timelines for chemotherapy, immunotherapy, radiation therapy, surgery. And if you're not committed to those timelines, the outcome can be different. So the patient is committed to those timelines. And he may not feel like boxing tonight, but the surgery scheduled today, we have for this patient with breast cancer, a surgical team, a plastic surgery team, so all these complex teams aligned together to complete the task. So it's almost impossible to reschedule them timely. And of course, every delay in cancer treatment can be associated with worse prognosis. So long story short, we have to commit to the timelines. So with that being said, one is the timelines. The second one is cancer treatment is one of the few situations in life when even if you're down, you feel like you cannot take it anymore, you still have to get an additional round, an initial set of chemotherapy. And that is part of the challenge. Even in American football, when a player is injured, everybody puts a knee down and everybody takes his time for the player to recover. In cancer treatment, the patient may feel as worse as he ever felt before, but still is going to receive additional treatment. And it made me feel that the patients feel more like in a contact sport where the patient is down and you still get hit. And with this drama and this crazy image that I had after all these years of doing this job in this field, I said, what's the positive message? Where is the positive message for the patient, for their families? Because we see that and you all see that because you've all worked with us and the patients do feel it like that. Most of the treatments, of course, there's progress in the cancer treatment. They're tolerating the treatments really well. There's a lot of focus and emphasis on having less toxicities from the cancer treatment. And there's no doubt this completely changed the dynamic of the field and the way patients perceive the treatment. 
but still it's brutal. Still it is with no mercy throughout it because the opponent in front of the patient is sometimes twice bigger. And then I had the same revelation. You know, we all came from Romania and when I grew up, all the country was paralyzed. Muhammad Ali was boxing. And then I said, okay, maybe that's how a winner looks like in this context. Of course, so you have to have some degree of cockiness. The one in front of you, again, the cancer we talked about, maybe twice bigger, but guess what? You have to feel like a winner. So we encourage the patients to feel and fight this fight. And the second one is to treat the disease as something that has to be hit back. So we focus and emphasize on patients' discipline about getting regular sleep hours, eat well, and exercise. And exercise because it's cardiovascular fitness is driving the survivorship. And it was a long parenthesis, but the bottom is our main focus, the very first second I see that patient in our clinic is the patient cardiovascular fit. Is he ready to fight this fight? Does he look like a professional boxer? Does he look like someone who can get in the ring and fight? And how can you go and fight in the ring if you have stable angina? How can you go in the ring and fight if you have severe stenosis? How can you go in the ring and fight if you have severe pulmonary hypertension? How can you go in the ring and fight if you have a large pericardial diffusion? The answer to all those things after all these years have simplified to me where we have completely changed the paradigm to where in the past cardiology clinics and cardiovascular centers were sending the patients with cancer to the cancer centers for the cancer care first and recover them after the cancer treatment is completed to where we challenge these things as they happen or before the cancer treatment as fast as we can. So we can provide the patient throughout the treatment discomfort of having no cardiovascular symptoms, no cardiovascular mortality and morbidity. So they can fight a good fight with the disease. So again, I think it was a long parenthesis, but the answer for that question with stable angina, the first thing I would have is, of course, despite trastuzumab, despite all the cardiomyopathy we've known about and we read about, my first thought would be in almost even a young lady with cardiovascular factors, be still CAD, so coronary disease. I really loved your analogy right there, Dr. Eliasco. I've heard of cancer being compared to, you know, like a crab sort of do not know what cancer is doing inside your body, but cancer treatment being compared to professional boxing is really interesting. It's wonderful that as a seasoned interventional cardiologist, you still have all these revelations and deep understanding of the disease process here. So just to quickly summarize what you said, your idea is to basically treat the cardiovascular disease prior to cancer treatment. So now moving on to our case, Ms. Tasumab, does undergo nuclear stress testing, revealing a moderate area of inferior ischemia. So we plan on starting her on medical therapy for now, but we are wondering how we should approach potential coronary revascularization, especially since she might be starting cancer treatment soon. So what is your practice in this scenario, Dr. Eliasco? So again, an excellent question. And the most important thing to do today that we used not to do is to really look at the problem. So the question is, defining the problem, understanding the magnitude is the number one step. And again, we talked about this one. We have several tools, depending on the center, depending on the specialties available, but just simple, simple algorithm that we do that. And of course, ICAS was good in developing right way to re-stratify and screen these patients. But long story short, the way I look is, does the patient have cardiovascular effect? Does the patient have a history of established or no established cardiovascular disease? Does the patient have on all the scanning that we've seen from staging of the disease, coronary calcifications? If the answer to all those is no, then you have a different approach. If any of those add up to where you're concerned and your balance weights towards having established coronary disease, then the next step would be to define the amount of myocardium you may have at risk if something happens. And we have many ways to do it these days, you know, and it's all spectrum of, you know, from even doing a simple coronary CT to define the coronary anatomy and see what you're dealing with 
to, of course, more sophisticated imaging modalities like a cardiac PET that we really do a lot of cardiac PETs and you all know. It's my favorite tool. It gives us a complete understanding, a great baseline. And this is what we're working right now actively. Since you all left, we're doing really this amazing PET database with the PET data, with, of course, large vessel and small vessel disease before and after treatment and see how these patients with normal or abnormal pets, you know, uh, do fare during the cancer treatment and also how the cancer treatments affect the disease. So that'll be the second. And of course, you know what I do every day. The last one, you know, I'm an interventionist, but always the last resort is invasive coronary imaging. And then we assess, of course, if you have a main vessel, osseal lesions, proximal lesions, again, we're more aggressive in fixing them. If again, we have stable lesions and small branches, we watch them. Of course, we have a high threshold to fix any lesions. And again, you all worked with me. We IFR and FFR heavy lesion, we think in revascularizing. But uh, long story short, you can see from all my story that again, we have to first understand as comprehensively as we can do it, the amount of disease the patient has and understand the risk balance ratio. And a lot of people try in this process to do it as simple as they can, maybe having in mind cost effectiveness and everything. But I will tell you this. The cancer treatment cost escalated over the last two decades to where almost every cancer patient treated cost is in hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then you're going back to what the ultimate outcome is, which is the patient to be cancer-free with minimal morbidity and mortality from the cancer treatment and from all the other, from our perspective, cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. So if you look at the overall outcome and the cost of the cancer care, the cardiovascular care that fortunately got less and less expensive over the last decade, it's not such a barrier to a good understanding. Almost like you want to ensure the investment that you have, you know, there's almost this half a million dollar investment in treatment on this patient with cardiovascular workup, which you're looking in thousands of dollars, but not in hundreds of thousands of dollars before the cancer treatment. So I hope this answers your question, brother. Thank you for that, Dr. Iliescu. For our listeners who don't know, ICOS is the International Cardio-Oncology Society. They've been very active with pushing evidence-based documents to help us care for cancer patients with cardiovascular disease. It's just fascinating how different the approach to CAD is in cancer patients when compared to the non-cancer population. Sounds like multimodality imaging, physiologic testing, intracoronary imaging, and the multidisciplinary approach are needed much more frequently in cancer versus non-cancer patients. As you mentioned, that seems to add up to healthcare costs. But when you draw the line and see how much you can save with the oncologic aspect, it's actually a fascinating figure. So thank you very much for sharing this healthcare cost perspective as well. Now, I need to interrupt our discussion, however, because we just got an emergent call from the ER. There's an ill-appearing patient, Mr. Adrian Carcinoma. He is 70 years of age, has hypertension and diabetes, and is currently on treatment for stage 2 gastric cancer with 5-fluorouracil and oxaloplatin. He describes acute onset dyspnea and malaise. On exam, he is cachectic and appears in respiratory distress. He is tachycardic with a regular heart rate of 110 beats per minute, has a blood pressure of 100 over 60 millimeters of mercury, which is lower than his baseline, and is tachypnic with a respiratory rate of 25 breaths per minute. An electrocardiogram reveals ST segment depressions in inferior and lateral leads. Lab evaluation shows a white blood count of 3,700, a moderate normocytic anemia with a hemoglobin of 9.6 grams per deciliter, which is his baseline, and a platelet count of 14,000, which is consistent with recent values after his starting chemotherapy, along with a troponin of 5 nanograms per deciliter. An echocardiogram is currently pending. 
Dr. Eliescu, this is certainly a very complex case with multiple challenges to cardiovascular management. I find the presentation of this patient atypical for ACS given absence of chest pain. So we'll discuss a little bit about cardiovascular management in general, but before that, I'd like to ask you, would you anticipate non-classic presentations for ACS in patients with cancer? Thanks, Adino. And actually, I was fixing to interfere and go back and give additional specification to the previous question, but your next question is absolutely giving us a reason why we're so aggressive initially in defining coronary anatomy, understanding the physiology, and doing all this complete workup to begin with before we start this roller coaster. And it's exactly why this happens. If you do not complete the workup in the very beginning when a patient has a hemoglobin, usually 12, 14, patients' blood pressure and heart rate are okay in the 120s, 130s, with a heart rate in the 60s, 70s, and with no other challenges or obstacles, then you will face the same question when the patient's hemoglobin drops from 14 to 7 from procedural bleeding or chemotherapy-related. The heart rate is going to go up to 100+. plus from the pain, hypotension, infection, you name it. And on top of that, instead of doing the intervention when the platelets are normal, we're facing the situation where the patient is in the middle of the fight with batteries partially depleted from the cancer treatment. And with, again, all these obstacles, which is thrombocytopenia, and sometimes it's not unusual to spend cytopenia, hemoglobin 7, 8, for us is normal. Wild account, again, we double scrub, triple scrub the patients before the procedure because of the neutropenia. But back to the story, the typical presentation for cancer patient is not chest pain, but shortness of breath for acute coronary syndrome. And that's one of the particularities we've learned it many years ago when Dr. Wamith Yusuf, one of our senior faculty, looked back to how the cancer patient presents with acute coronary syndrome and its shortness of breath. And that is exactly very challenging and very intriguing because if you talk about the department that covers patients with cancer, Majority of our patients are short of breath. And you say, is it short of breath and this fatigue from the disease or from the cardiovascular disease? And to my surprise, after all these years of doing it, as you all know, on a daily basis, one of the revelations that I got is it's not unusual, the driver for all the symptoms to be asked, coronary disease. And it's not unusual to have patients where we do this comprehensive workup before the treatment, the patient denies any symptoms. So he says, doc, why do you do a stress test on me? based on your cardiovascular factors, based on this crazy calcium score that the patient has. Sometimes under normal stresses, it was ordered by an outside physician. Why do you have to go and further assess and do a coronary angiogram? And of course, we go in and it's no surprise that mild ischemia is actually balanced ischemia, a little bit worse, slow in one of the territories. And we had by rising completely the patient. And then it's no surprise to us when the patient comes back and says, I've never been this since I was 20. And I always thought it's because I'm getting old. I always thought it's because of the cancer. I always thought because I needed transfusions. And after you fix the heart, I'm just brand new. And it is, uh, again, we're guilty in underestimating the severity of cardiovascular disease. I think we've been afraid before to tackle these patients, which are super complex. And I think your effort with the Cardio Nerds and your Cardio Nerds Academy is phenomenal because it increases awareness throughout the country in young fellows the way you are that are not having all these preconceptions about cancer and about the fatality of it. And you live in this world where we have better cancer outcomes, where we're more optimistic, where again, most of us, all of us have family members that have and face cancer. And where another day, it's of paramount importance. So we're fighting, we know, again, we talked about this one, completely different outcomes. How many cycles of chemotherapy the patient receives is a good outcome. The fact that the patient has completed cancer treatment is a good outcome. And again, back to this story, we have this patient super complicated with a typical presentation for cardiovascular world, but typical presentation for cancer world. 
this patient in our practice, again, shortness of breath with some EKG changes with obviously a positive troponin. It's the work we've done with you and with Theo and with Bala. It qualifies for early invasive strategies. So if you do that, this patient obviously bought himself a calf. Again, we go and we do this invasive angiogram because probably it's the fastest. The patient is fast to where he wouldn't get the CT. The patient will be slow, would not be in an acute situation. I would probably favor, like always, you know, the non-invasive approach to do a coronary CT and define the coronary anatomy. But in this patient that's already super sick and you get this field that is going to become unstable in no time, we would probably favor an invasive strategy where we'll do a left heart catheterization to define the coronary anatomy. And it's part of the standard approach when we go and we do this cardiac catheterization on the patient to get an elvigram. So the patient may be lucky, maybe just have a stress-induced cardiomyopathy, so may have tacosubo. And again, it's not unusual with 5-FU, it's notorious vasospastic therapy, causes endothelial dysfunction and all the foundation of this endothelial dysfunction. The patients are more prone to develop vasospasm. And I think that is the approach to go. And after that, if it's no tacosubo, again, define the coronary anatomy and go from there. There are some technicalities for the patient with thrombocytopenia and the invasive approach. And we've learned this over the last more than 15 years of doing it. First, there's always this balanced risk benefit. So first, am I worried about the intracranial bleed more or I'm worried more about the cardiovascular status and the fact that the patient is becoming unstable? If I'm going with the echo data, which is, again, we're getting more and more sophisticated, we're understanding better, and we almost can guess if the patient is going to have tacosub or not. If we believe it's going to be more likely tacosubo, we usually just go diagnostic approach. We go femoral. We always aim for the lower third of the femoral head to make sure we're not putting the patient at risk of having a retroperineal bleed. And we define the coronary anatomy. And very, very often we close the vascular axis. Of course, also under ultrasound, there's always micropuncture. And we close the axis site with the angioseal, which for us was the safest way and the more reliable way to close arterial axis or the femoral axis without giving any heparin. Now, if the patient, the overall picture is, we're almost sure we're going to have to go and intervene and we're going to have to proceed with the revascularization and with the PCI, we always go through the following steps. First, we discuss with the patient. The patient has to completely understand the risk and the benefits of the procedure. The patient has to understand there's no plan B. There's no surgical team that's going to come and back you up with let us 14,000. So the patient has to understand that and the family. The second one is we have to make sure you have the blood products available in your institution. These patients usually receive multiple transfusions before. Some of them develop some challenging patterns of antibodies that make finding blood products challenging. So in that situation, you want to make sure you have the blood products and everything available before you get in if you have to replace anything. We've done in our institution and you're all part of this effort when we did thrombolastograms and Aliaga wrote a very nice paper where we look at thrombolastograms. And these thrombolastograms give us a picture about what blood products you need before these high-risk interventions in patients with thrombocytopenia. For prolonged ours, again, we've talked about this, is fresh frozen plasma for modifications in the K or the alpha angle is prior precipitate. And then for maximum amplitude is always playlist. But for all intents and purposes, you are in the community, you have a complicated patient like this, you want to go and define the anatomy, and you have a bleed. You have a radial bleed that you cannot control despite the TR bed, you cannot control. You have any vessel injuries in any way you can think of, and you have to achieve hemostasis. God forbid you have a perforation, and you really have to achieve hemostasis in a way or another. Then I would encourage you to transfuse all three blood products. So fresh ozoplasma, cryo, and platelets so all together and not wait for the tag. So that's a situation, an extreme situation, and you have to control using all three blood products. And back to the story, once you do the radial access, we use this modified algorithm for anticoagulation to where we use half dose of heparin 
again, we've not used anything else but heparin. So we've not used bivalirudin and we've not used anything else. So basically for radial access, low platelet less than 50,000, we go 30 to 50 units per kg of heparin. Of course, aspirin, antiplatelet agents, and then we've used only P2R12 inhibition with clopidogrel. And the reason we've chosen clopidogrel is just trying to balance the risk of bleeding with the superb new stand platforms that we have for the drug eluting stands that have fantastic safety profile. And we have, again, almost no stand thrombosis, minimal instant stenosis. And with this very, very good and well-designed platforms, these patients do not need additional bailout that we need from the increased P12 inhibition provided by the newer generation like Agagalor and Prasugra. Thank you so much, Dr. Iliescu, for going over so many details in your answer. I'll just say I'm early in my cardiology training, but I've already faced the challenge of dealing with dyspnea on exertion. It's such a hard symptom to evaluate and diagnose. I feel like this might get even harder in cancer patients where this symptom could be caused by so many things. We have to add coronary artery disease and ACS to our differential. Furthermore, as someone who's interested in becoming an interventionist, I can't help but acknowledge how nuanced a decision is to take a patient with such severe thrombocytopenia to the cath lab to begin with. Thank you for going over the procedural technicalities as well. It's important for everyone in the team to understand the challenges you have to anticipate when sending or taking these patients to the cath lab. You've briefly touched upon this as well. If a stent was deemed life-saving in the situation, the decision for the type of stent can be incredibly difficult, and I know traditionally bare metal stents have been chosen due to shorter DAP durations. In the modern era of newer generation drug-eluting stents with decreased DAP durations, is there any role for bare metal stents? How do you choose what stents to use, and what is your recommended antiplatelet strategy after PCI in cancer patients with chronic thrombocytopenia? All excellent questions, Theo, and really thank you so much for the perspective that you placed on the previous case. I will tell you, we started, like everybody else, using bare metal stents in the first few years in my career at MD Anderson. We alternated using bare metal stents for patients where we dissipated abbreviated dual antiplatelet course close to a month, and then we used a bare metal stent, and then we used drug letting stents for where we had three months or six months margin of the APT. But as things evolved and then as the stent platforms became way more advanced and way more gentle on the endothelial healing, we've moved to where we're not using BML stents at all. We have data from our group and you've all been uh, outstanding contribution to this one where we showed that this high-risk patient population that will very, very likely have abbreviated DAPT course still does fairly well with drug loading stents. And when you look in retrospect to our data with BML and drug loading stent, actually we did not have increased risk of stent thrombosis in our patient population despite the abbreviated DAPT course. And I think these results are mainly because we've been very, very cognizant about the importance of stent expansion. And we always were sure that we do not finish the procedure before we do intravascular imaging. So we have a high threshold to stent. So we always IFR, IFFR, if we do not have PET data or non-invasive partial data. And then we have a low threshold to use intravascular imaging. So almost every patient should get intravascular ultrasound or optical coherence tomography on the way out to make sure that all the stand parameters are appropriate and have good stand expansion, good apposition to have optimal results. We had the extreme cases that we've done where, again, platelets 4, 8, uh, we had patients with complex left main stenting with platelets in the 8th end range. And these patients need to continue cancer treatment. Usually are hematological malignancies. So they will receive additional chemotherapy and the platelets will drop further. 
So we had a discussion where we tried to push the 80-play regimen with P2 inhibition uh, with the clopidogrel the minimum a month. But that being said, it's always a balance. And as long as the patient understands the risk, these are extreme cases, and we can have even more abbreviated DAPT course. I call it extremely abbreviated DAPT course. And we had those situations. But again, I think there's something to it where this patient with extreme thrombocytopenia, despite the fact that these platelets may sometimes be still be functional, they do not thrombose as much as we think. So I think that we had some margin over there to where even stopping P2R12 inhibition extremely fast after the intervention, and then sometimes even the aspirin, while the go zero one, and still we had no events. Again, this is just, we had tens of patients with extreme thrombocytopenia, hundreds overall with patients with thrombocytopenia. And again, it's not reproducible to where you say you do this every day. So it's always have to be a balance. It's always have to be a decision from this complex cardio-oncology team. It has to be said that the patients with thrombocytopenia are also the sickest from a cancer perspective. So they have the most challenging survival from that aspect. Thrombocytopenia is a mark of the severity of the cancer. So irrespective of the cardiovascular disease, these patients have limited survivorship, usually in the three to six month range. So the decision to intervene these patients is a very, very complex one, and it's a very critical one. Anyways, it keeps in its balance, again, the odds that the patient will respond to the cancer treatment, the odds of the patient having, with appropriate response, a longer lifespan, more than six months to a year. And all those things have to weigh in. And of course, patients age. With extremely young patients, we fight with all this to the extreme, depending on how the patient substrate the frailty and the resilience to all these challenges, we may uh, be, again, more more inclined to where we medically manage the patient and we're not as aggressive as intervening. So show all these extremes, but as you all know, we're always very balanced and we always try to stay and not do unless we have no way around it. And I think it's always as to, for all of the interventionists that listen to us, uh, I think that's the best approach, you know, it keeps us safe for all these years. So we intervene when we have no way around it, but when we intervene with appropriate indications, with appropriate planning, we've been successful in doing these interventions on a regular basis for more than a decade now. That was very enlightening, Dr. Liusko. Although it does sound very scary, it is very interesting to note that these complex patients are able to do quite well in spite of an abbreviated DAPD course. And based on your experience, I'm able to understand the role of intravascular imaging is quite important here. So moving on to our case, after careful pre-procedural planning, Mr. Carcinoma here undergoes coronary angiography, revealing a 90% stenosis of the mid-RCA. He is treated with OCT-guided PCI and receives a single new-generation drug-eluting stent with good opposition, verified by OCT on the way out. The medical team caring for the patient on the floor is asking us if the post-PCI care in cancer patients is similar to the general population. So Dr. Eliasko, as an interventional cardiologist, how do you look at all cancers? Are all cancers made equal in terms of outcomes after PCI? And when would it be safe to resume cancer therapy after PCI? I answer this question in three steps. So first, and it's very, very interesting. After all these years, I realized that outcomes of these patients is probably close to 90% driven by the cancer outcomes. So because of that, we're very, very aggressive in resuming cancer as early as it needs to be done. And that's why I think this classification that we've used for the last 15, 20 years about hematological malignancies and solid tumors is very helpful because the hematological malignancies have with them and leukemia there and stem cell by far probably another level of acuity to where delays of weeks and months are really fatal. So in that situation, we had patients stented today and we resumed chemotherapy that night. At the other end of the spectrum, 
We have slow growing tumors where the delayed two to four weeks in cancer treatment will not overall modify prognosis, the disease and overall survivorship. And of course, in those situations, we're more cognizant that we wait for the stent to heal. So we delay more of the treatment. We talked about this one in a very nice paper we published in the Romanian Journal of Cardiology, where we're talking about personalizing cardiovascular care in this patient population. So the post-stent care is decided actually before we put the stent in. So it's a complex team that negotiates these timelines, and then we just stick with those timelines. So of course, this negotiation is driven by the oncologist. I always like to say there's always one chef in the kitchen, and that's the oncologist. And you always have to have this difference when you understand that they're driving 90% of the outcome. So we always negotiate, we always try to help, but we always let them have the final say, because in the end, that's what matters. So once we hear how much time we have and what a window we have to take care of the cardiovascular component, then we decide, again, what stand, what form of revascularization, when, how early after that, it's already decided we resume cancer therapy and we stick with the schedule. We talked about this one and I love the story. Again, we do image on the way out. We've done this elegant work with one of our young lads. Uh, now it's a Baylor resident, Moise Aziz. So we talked about stand healing and the stand heals in cancer patients like in general population. So there's no difference in stand healing and almost no difference in the stand we use once we use one, this new generation, third generation diluting stent. So we have almost any stent we're using right now these days. It's an excellent stent with a great platform, great polymers, great diluting medications. And they do heal one month. So we're super comfortable in, again, if the question is when to resume cancer therapy, I would say two weeks would be ideal. But if it needs to be done earlier, is that okay with us as well? But ideally, we say two weeks after extend deployment for drug eluting stand to resume cancer therapies, immunotherapies, and surgery. Again, we're comfortable to stop the p 2 inhibition at one month and complete cancer care with a surgical resection that we hope is curative. So for radiation therapy, we're way more liberal. We let the patient resume radiation therapy as fast as they need it. Unless it's really targeted on the mediastinum and then maybe there, we'll wait a little longer for achieving a better stand healing. I hope this answers the question. It definitely does. Thank you, Dr. Iliescu. Now, team, I do need to interrupt you again. We're on the phone with one of our oncology colleagues who's asking for our advice regarding Mr. Val V. Thick. He's a 75-year-old man with severe paradoxical low-flow, low-gradient aortic stenosis. He's asymptomatic at baseline and is able to walk a mile every day. He actually had an echo about four months ago that showed an aortic valve area of 0.9 centimeters square, a mean transaortic gradient of 30 millimeters of mercury, a stroke volume index of 21 millimeters per meter square, a DI of 0.21, and a left ventricular rejection fraction of 50%. He was recently diagnosed with HER2-positive gastric cancer, and his oncologist is considering starting treatment with trastuzumab, but he's concerned about the patient developing heart failure. He's asking for advice regarding whether the aortic valve needs to be replaced and how, as well as when he could safely start cancer treatment. So Dr. Eliescu, how do you approach aortic stenosis in the setting of cancer that needs therapy? Thank you, Dino. Back to our initial story. The cancer disease, cancer treatment will be associated with episodes of anemia, tachycardia, hypotension. Of course, the patient is going to go several procedures requiring anesthesia. And so the typical approach in general population, I do believe will not work. Elegant data from our group led by Dr. Yusuf many years ago. So the first question was, should you fix the aortic valve before cancer treatment? And again, the answer is yes. People had almost like a 50% difference in mortality in favor of 
facing the valve basically before the cancer treatment compared to those we did not. We killed five patients by not fixing the aortic valves before the cancer treatment. And this is our group experience, which was replicated by many other groups throughout the world. So the first question is, should you fix the valve before the cancer treatment? The answer is yes. The second question is, what type of valve you're going to use? Tower or you're going to use Sauber? So surgical versus percutaneous valve. Again, it's a simple question these days. It was challenging 15 years ago to make a cancer patient always high risk. Majority of our patients were in the moderate, moderate high risk, but really not as high risk as we think. And it was a little more challenging to enroll in those patients in the initial studies. Once the threshold for the tennis valves was lowered from just the high risk to the moderate risk, majority of our patients were qualifying for the moderate risk and they got the tennis valve. Now with the lowering the bar even further to the low risk, again, there's no discussion that the cancer patients should get a percutaneous valve. And the reason is, we asked one of our most prominent oncologists at MD Anderson, where's the evidence? You know where two months delay in cancer care will make a difference. And, and I got the answer was only a cardiologist could ask this question. Okay, so an oncologist would never ask this question. And that's why the question was never answered. Because the reality is, as someone who's witnessed the disease for all these decades, you wish you had got the treatment yesterday. And that's the reality. So you cannot afford the risk of waiting and seeing what happens when the one that's really getting the treatment is your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your kid. So there's no discussion about the acuity of the treatment and how expeditious the treatment should be for these patients. So the question again, one, should you fix the valve is yes. The second one, I think the answer is a percutaneous valve. And the next question is how fast after the stent placement you can resume cancer treatment. And our experience with the elegant work that you all did with Clarence Gill is two weeks for the percutaneous valve and it's two months for the surgical valve. So we can resume cancer therapy in average two weeks after the percutaneous valve and then two months after the surgical valve with the understanding that in extreme situations like hematological malignancies, leukemia, stem cell transplant, in particular, more aggressive diseases, we can resume the cancer treatment three, four days after the valve was implanted. Thanks for really simplifying the decision-making for us, Dr. Eliasko. So you're saying treat the valve before starting cancer treatment and looks like you're just moving towards TAVR overall. So when it comes to matters of the heart, it looks like cancer leaves no stone unturned. I just got a call from the ER and I'm there right now with our next patient, Mr. Kanbo Platin. So he's 62 years old and has a history of diabetes, hypertension, severe coronary artery disease, having just received a stent to the LAD four months ago, currently on dual antiplatelet therapy, and he has a history of malignant epithelioid mesothelioma. So his cancer treatment is quite complex. It included chemoradiation with three cycles of carboplatin and pemetrexate, followed by surgical left pleurectomy with decortication and partial pericardectomy. He came to the ER with progressive shortness of breath and worsening chest pain. On exam, we noted labored breathing, muffled heart sounds, and jugular venous distension. The patient's heart rate was 92 beats per minute, his blood pressure was 80 or 60, and his respiratory rate was 20 breaths per minute. An electrocardiogram revealed normal sinus rhythm, Labs showed a white blood count of 1,700, hemoglobin of 7.6, and a platelet count of 61,000. An echocardiogram revealed preserved ejection fraction with no wall motion abnormalities and a large pericardial effusion, suggestive of tamponade physiology. So, Dr. Eliasko, this patient clearly needs an urgent pericardiosynthesis. However, he has several high-risk features that could complicate such a procedure. Now, I have personally seen you operate on such a case. Now, what would your approach be in this scenario? Are there any specific procedural considerations to bear in mind in such a high-risk case? Thank you, Bala. Excellent question and very dear to me. 
we started tackling this case is almost 15 years ago. The story of the patient you described is actually the patient we really wrote up almost identical in cardio-oncology and jack oncocardiology and under excellent guidance of Bonnie Key about how to do a cardiocentesis in cancer patients. This is the regular story. The patient is super complex. It's surgical options are there. Surgical teams are phenomenally trained and they can pursue these super complex patients. But the question is, is it worth the morbidity and mortality associated with those procedures or there's an easier way for us to relieve the hemodynamic compromise from this large pericardial effusion? And our typical approach is, and as you all know it, is we always say yes. So we always try to do it percutaneously. And it starts with a very meticulous preparation for the procedure. We go, we examine the patient, we look at the body habitus, we look at all the scarring and all the skin changes from the previous treatments. The patient is super complex in the sense that most likely is going to have some scarring from the previous intervention decortication. Also, the patient may have some skin changes from the previous radiation in the areas of pristine skin, not where we can uh, approach and, and, and proceed with, with pericardiosynthesis, may not be as large as we would like. Breast cancer patients with fungating mass are a huge challenge and face similar problem where we have to go in and relieve the large pericardial diffusion and the skin is not intact and you do not want to see the pericardial space any skin flora. But back to the story. So we first look at the numbers counts. We talked about the algorithm for patients with thrombocytopenia. When you see thrombocytopenia, patients on P2I12 inhibition, patients on DOAC, and it's very, very important for our young doctors and young cardiologists in particular, where we have patients with atrial fibrillation, with high CHESGA score, we initiate anticoagulation. And again, it's not as uncommon as we wish. The large pericardial effusions always hemorrhagic from direct oral anticoagulants. And in that situation, the patient is in tampon, then you have to release that pressure and how are you going to go? Subsidioid, as a previous surgeon and abdominal surgeon, I do still have vividly in front of me when we're trying to do futures on the liver and with super delicate needles in meticulous, with meticulous hemostasis. And it was very, very challenging to achieve hemostasis before we got all these fancy sponges with coagulation textures in them that achieve hemostasis. But you imagine this one, we go percutaneously with no control. And if we touch any piece of the liver structure, the patient will continuously ooze and all this fluid collection will not be able to visualize it. It's going to be in Douglas pouch and we lose the patient with uncontrolled bleeding. So I have, again, a high threshold to go subcyphoid. My preferred approach with these patients with complex coagulopathies or low platelets or on oral anticoagulants or on P12 inhibition is apical. So apical approach, lateral approach is the preferred approach. Once we decide about that, then we go and we scan and I encourage all of you to scan yourself. The scanning is the most important skill. You imagine yourself that the echo probe is your needle and I like to tilt up, tilt down, move the probe to the shoulder, move midline and get the feel of really my angles, my margin of error, how I'm going to approach the space. And also for the apical approach, same thing. We scan up, we scan down. And then I get a good idea using, of course, body landmarks and skin landmarks to where we're going to do the approach. Once I finish this initial evaluation, I go back to the computer and all of you, you have Epic. And then we look at the chest x-ray and you make sure we do not have a huge colonic distension. All these patients are sick, so they do not move bowels as well. We do not gastrostasis, gastroparesis, and we have a huge gastric bubble that will make the access to the pericardial space challenging. So with that in mind, and after doing the CAT scan, I love CTs. If the patient has a CT chest and abdomen, 
it's a dream for me because what it does is you scan up and down and you almost do the procedure like a CT guided pericardiocentesis because you decide your landmarks on the CT, where you're going to access the space, how far from the midline, how far from the sternum is the access point. And based on that, you decide before you even go in and you stick the needle. And of course, you've confirmed already with the echo imaging and you already get a feel where the space is. If there's loculation and this patient is super complex and it's maybe loculate as well, you decide if you're going to be more posterior, more interior, you really decide your angle. So we can finesse all this to the extreme to where we start executing the procedures. It's really straightforward. So I would prefer to go apical. Once we go apical, we have a little tricks over there as well. So it's always a micropuncture needle with a micropuncture wire. We favor the Cook system, which is a five French, very delicate pediatric pericardial drain. And with that one, we get access in the pericardial space. We always have connected the micropuncture needle with a lidocase syringe. And I continuously aspirate and insert lido in to make sure the needle is patent. Micropuncture needle is a very good needle, but also it's a sharp needle that if it Biopsies, the ribs can do a fantastic bone biopsy and will occlude the lumen. So you can go through all the cardiac structures without noticing because you touch the rib first. And again, we know exactly go on the upper edge of the intercostal space tangent to the upper border of the rib. Make sure you're not nicking the intercostal arteries or intercostal bundle for all intents and purposes. And then once you get in the pericardial space in the fluid is serious. I favor securing the space with a wire. And after that, we inject the dilator. These patients are complex, like your patient, Barlock, would have also a pleural infusion. So you never know if you're in the pleural space or pericardial space. That's why I find it extremely useful to do this procedure, not at the bedside, but in the cath lab. And I know, did not tell you, Mayo Clinic, so everybody does them on the side and apical. We do it on the cath lab table and we do all on echo, floral, and vascular ultrasound guidance. So I call it triple guidance to increase safety in these complex patients. And the reason is we get access with the micropuncture needle, injecting bubbles through that one. Sometimes it's challenging, especially with loculations, especially when this fluid may be denser than we would like. And then those bubbles do not propagate as nicely as we would like in the pericardial space and we don't see them. I call that... Uh, <laughs> laughing echo blinding procedure. So I don't see anything despite we injecting the pericardial space at least several times and we don't see anything. So then we inject the wire and the wire gives us the reassurance. It goes in the pericardial space, covers nicely. It goes nicely around the heart. And then we feel the comfort to advance the dilator of the micropuncture needle. It's a larger bore. Usually in this stage, we can see the bubbles better. And then we have the reassurance of being in the pericardial space. And then we go from there, we complete the procedure. If the fluid is bloody, it's a must. To confirm the intrapericardial position, we inject bubbles as many times as we need. Usually this blood from the pericardial space does not coagulate. So if you're really desperate and the patient is in tamponade clinically, you don't have time to see all these things. We just basically squirt some fluid on the 4x4 and it does not coagulate. We keep on going and advancing the larger size catheters to evacuate the space faster before the patient becomes unstable. So once the catheter is secured, again, we confirm under fluoroscopy, we confirm again, we drain it, most of it, then we leave it open to gravity for three to five days with the intent of really completely draining the space, creating some scarring between these two layers to prevent recurrence. And that's part of the story. Not that common, you know, we're looking at 10% recurrence for our patient population. And with this, keeping the drain longer, it actually decreases by another 25%. Thank you so much for taking us through the steps of the procedure, Dr. Iliasko. I would like to advise our listeners to find and read the Jack Cardio-Oncology article that you mentioned, How to Perform Pericardiosynthesis in Cancer Patients with Thrombocytopenia. This was published in September 2021. 
If you also want to check out an impressive case we saw during our time at MD Anderson or Dr. Eliescu, you could also look up Halloween in the cath lab, spider web pericardial effusion. Dr. Eliescu, thank you so much for taking the time to share your vast, unique experience and so many practice pearls with the cardio nerds. Now it's time for our favorite question of the episode. What makes your heart flutter about interventional cardio-oncology, Dr. Liescu? Thank you, Theo. I think the patients. The answer is the patients. As you all know me, we've always been privileged to serve. And that's the biggest thing, you know, the fact that all of you and you and Bala and all these talented young kids have this fantastic opportunity and chance to have the skills and the knowledge and to train in phenomenal places to serve the patients. I think that's the, the, the most exciting thing and keeps me going. Dr. Liescu. Thank you for that inspiring answer and for our fascinating discussion throughout the day today. Thank you also for sharing your wisdom and truly unique experience with us. You had the vision of seeing these gaps between two complex worlds, namely cardio-oncology and interventional cardiology, and actually doing something about it. Your practice and research are truly unique, and we're absolutely privileged to have you with us, cardio nerds, today. Everyone, thank you so much for being with us today. Theo, Bala, thank you for leading our discussion. Ahmed, Dan, Giselle, thank you for your help with coordinating our series. We will be back with the Cardio Nerds Cardio Oncology series soon. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another Cardio Nerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Akiva Rosenzweig. I'm an intern in the Cardio Nerds Academy House Thomas and resident at Cleveland Clinic. Check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode or the show informative, please consider subscribing to Cardio Nerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All Cardio Nerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardio Nerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now it's time to make like an S2 and split.